Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and I'm joined, as always, by site publisher Chris Cartman, as well as reporters Mason Kern, Trevor Booth, and Jacob Rudner. Fellas, how we doing on this fine Thursday morning? Doing great, Rob. Ready to get into another podcast here. Should be a good one. Yep, a lot of going on with basketball and football, so a lot to talk about. Everybody's excited when Trevor talks. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> I'm just excited to be here with you, Rob. It's a great day to be here with you. You know, Rob... Day after signing day, I'm still drunk off half of a pumpkin porter. <laughs> so half a beer, boss. So I'm I'm really living it up. Uh, well, I think Antonio Pierce and Marvin Lewis right now are living it up a little bit. Co-defensive coordinators uh, for ASU. We're going to start with the coaching changes. Uh, Tony White, uh, after being uh, recently promoted less than a month ago uh, to become ASU's uh, next defensive coordinator, took the same position. Uh, at Syracuse just a couple days ago. Chris, can you explain that to us a little bit? Uh, what are some of the reasons uh, for that departure, and then, you know, why did that shape? So this was pretty perplexing, pardon me, to ASU fans. And I kind of understand that because Syracuse is viewed at best as a lateral move and could be perceived as a worse job. Uh, Dino Babers, the Syracuse head coach, a very good offensive mind, he targeted uh, Zach Arnett, who was at San Diego State and ran the three-three-five defense by pioneered by Rocky Long, and then Arnett left to go coach at Mississippi State after less than a month. Uh, Mike Leach's new job. So, because uh, Babers had it in his mind that he wanted to still implement that three-three-five, there's just not a lot of guys out there that that he could turn to to do that, and he made. Tony White a pretty aggressive offer from a compensation standpoint and ASU was just not prepared or willing to 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 come close to matching that according to my sources uh Tony White's going to be making at least more than a hundred thousand dollars more than what Antonio Pierce and Zach Hill are going to be making and more than what ASU felt like it could come back to they weren't going to pay a guy who hasn't been a coordinator at any level um, at that rate compared to what Zach Hill and Antonio Pierce are making and I kind of understand that right there's we're going to talk later about the broader implications of ASU staffing Mm -hmm. turnover and and the ramifications of that but uh, the three factors really that uh, are intermingled in Tony White's decision-making process, and I spoke with him for about a half an hour uh, about this. Um, number one, and, and I'm not when I say number one, I'm not putting them in order necessarily. But um, n- number one really was the compensation part that we talked about. Number two is the um, the reality of a a uh, evolving ASU defense. What you had last year that we saw wasn't purely the uh, the three three five that as it was run under Rocky Long and mm-hmm. the way Danny Gonzalez probably did, did it his first year when they installed the defense they made some some tweaks to it and that was more of based upon what Herm Edwards and Marvin Lewis are uh, comfortable with what they like their style of defense right so I I think that that was going to continue this year. And interestingly, that juxtaposes against what Danny Gonzalez said when he arrived at ASU, which is um, 
you can't halfway run the three three five. It's all or nothing, right? So if you're Tony White and you see this up being the evolution of ASU defensively, and certainly if Tony White was gonna be able to parlay his opportunity at ASU into another maybe more prominent defensive coordinator job or a head coaching job. The writing is sort of on the wall, I think, from his perspective about where this defense is going and why. And a big component of that is the 3-3-5 is sort of like an equalizer. It's a defense that uh, is uncommon, that most opponents don't see, that has the ability to keep opponents off balance with their coordination and their quarterback. And uh, you don't know who's going to be necessarily the fourth rusher, the fifth rusher, mm-hmm. who's dropping into coverage. Linebackers are doing different things. You have defensive ends that will that will show that they're going to pressure, and then they'll drop back into passing lanes. And you can do a lot with man and zone coverages with your five DB structures, right? So uh, that sort of uh, the new car smell of the three three five in the Pac twelve, it sort of is going to wear off as more of these teams understand how to attack it, right? Mm -hmm. What are the tendencies? And um, especially as you get a a bigger prevalence of the 3-3-5 penetrating through college football, which really seems to be happening now. So when you get more talent, you have the ability to beat guys more in one-on-one matchups and play more traditional defense, which is probably easier for guys to learn when they're new to a system, mm-hmm. right? The ASU's veteran players now, they have a lot of guys who have been in the program two years, and they, they know the defense well. But it's a challenge to learn it. So I think uh, ASU's probably, uh, this is getting a slightly sort of on a tangent on it, but ASU, the, I thought the three three five was a really great thing for ASU to incorporate because it wasn't, in my mind, going to get better talent than half of the Pac-12. Mm-hmm. And so this was an equalizer. You can line up and you can just beat teams with not a deceptive sort of scheme if they're not as good as you. Or maybe if they are as good as you, but you're really disciplined, right? Mm-hmm. And you and, and, and everything about your game plan and your coaching is, is on point. But the more talented teams, you have to creatively figure out ways to beat them. And that's, that's what the 3-3-5 enables, just like the air raid on mm-hmm. offense. I'm not a believer in – I don't think it would be smart for Alabama to, to start going to air raid, right, and throwing the ball 80% of the time. It's, it's, you do that because you can't get the, the talent, especially in the trenches. And that's what actually Hermeta has alluded to in Antonio Pierce, which is now that they feel like they can get defensive linemen that are better – and they're scouring the country in this next class in order to be able to do that because a lot of them aren't in the West. Mm-hmm. And their overall recruiting has taken this marked uptick from what the program has historically done. It's not like, you know, everybody knows that, including especially Tony White. Yeah. Okay. So that's the second factor. If he goes to Syracuse, he's going to be able to do exactly what he wants to do schematically f- for making more money. There's not going to be any sort of, you know, finger on the scale of how we're going to run our defense or what things we want to do. That matters to people when you when that's your baby. Right. That's your thing. That matters. And then the third factor, which uh, Tony White was on the radio. We talked about this, spoke about it with me also 
is the family component. His mother uh, lives in New York. Syracuse is a you know, quick trip. Um, either way, they can probably spend a lot more time together. Other family members are there. And you can't see, – see, Tony White's a real classy guy. He's not going to say anything publicly or even uh, try to shape the narrative behind the scenes to make it seem like, well, ASU didn't pay me properly. And he's not going to say, oh, you know, it's because of disagreements about what we're going to do with our defense, right? Like, that's never going to be the narrative from mm-hmm. him. And, and, it's, and, and that's not even really a fair thing because Herm Edwards is a defensive mind who coached as a head coach in the NFL. And Marvin Lewis is in your program and coordinated defense. So they, these guys deserve to be able to have a conversation that free forms into the best, what they think is the stress testing for what their best defense should be. And, and Tony White very clearly understands and accepts that. At the same time, you might not be doing everything that you exactly would like to do. Mm-hmm. So, so I think those are the three factors. Now, it's impossible to say if one of those factors was less of an issue, what, what he would have done. Like, what if ASU did match Syracuse in, in salary? I don't think he knows the answer, really, uh, because that's not – it's hard to, to, to have that conversation in the hypothetical, right? Um, so – Nevertheless, ASU's, you know, moving on, and, you know, we're going to talk about that. And Yeah, I mean, Herm Edwards' decision to make Antonio Pierce and Marvin Lewis co-defensive coordinators uh, right after this move, and um, definitely uh, a little bit of a change from, from what, you know, Marvin Lewis's role was last year. He was a special advisor to ASU football. Antonio Pierce um, was a linebacker's coach, still is the recruiting coordinator. Uh, what is... What is this going to look like, Chris? And, and what, should be, what should we be watching in the spring to see how it's going? Well, very interestingly, Edwards was asked that question yesterday uh, at the signing press conference. And he did not go into specifics. It was kind of like uh, Marvin and AP are going to figure that out, right? And I, I, I think the question is who's going to be the play caller? Who's going to have more influence on what do they do schematically? Et cetera, et cetera. I don't think they know that yet. This this thing happened pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It was only a day before right. um, that they had an inkling that this might happen. And uh, my understanding was they knew for about six hours before the news came out. So in that six hours, they were like, Herm was like, okay, Marvin and AP, you guys are going to be the code, you know. And, and he said that Marvin basically volunteered for it. And uh, I personally think pretty strongly that Marvin Lewis is going to be an NFL head coach again within the next year to two years. I think that's more likely than not. And I view what Edwards is doing as a pretty savvy way of um, slowly sort of incorporating Antonio Pierce into that play calling, Mm -hmm. sole coordinator type of a role. I think he's tempering that with Marvin Lewis. And so... I think Marvin Lewis, my guess, and I'm not going to be wrong, but my guess is that Marvin Lewis will probably call the plays this first year. But they'll they'll implement a scheme that they both f- can have complete comfort in mm-hmm. and fluency of, of course. And it's going to be what I, from talking to, to them, I talked to Pierce for a while and some of the other people in the program, I think 
I think it's going to incorporate some elements of the 335, probably more on their exotic stuff, their pass rush capability. Maybe when they play against um, some of these air raid teams where, they, where they've gone to six defensive backs like they did last year against Washington State and USC. But I think that they're going to play more 40 front stuff um, where you have a pretty clear idea of who that fourth pass rusher is going to be a lot of times, whether he's in a two-point or three-point stance. Mm-hmm. Now, the challenge associated with that, and this is, uh, I think, it, this is the most important thing uh, of this whole conversation about whether it's going to be effective or not effective, is when you play the better teams, as I was talking about earlier, you have to be able to disguise what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, when you bring that fourth player to the line of scrimmage and you kind of know what he's going to be doing, it makes it more predictable and it makes it easier in a lot of respects for. A, an offense to understand what's coming, a quarterback to know what's coming, a coordinator, and how that they can attack that, okay? So what we need to see from them in the spring in their installs is how well uh, and how to what degree they're installing things that allow them to preserve an element of disguise about what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, even, even when you sort of have tendencies that are there. And, and overall, getting toward ASU coaching retention, we haven't touched on this a whole bunch on this podcast recently, but Jamar Kane, another name uh, who left ASU, he's going to go uh, coach at Oklahoma, known as a very good up-and-coming recruiter. Um, and Herm Edwards did say yesterday at the press conference that ASU is going to be hiring a defensive uh, line coach in the next couple of weeks. Um, Chris, what do you make of how Herm Edwards uh, has kept coaches and, and what he said about that specifically yesterday? We've talked on the podcast, on the website, quite a bit about Jamar Cain accomplishing something that had never probably been done before at ASU. He was a top-five recruiter in the Pac-12 and did that without taking one of his five commits that he was a primary recruiter on from ASU's geographical uh, strength area, right? The, it's hotbed, the Arizona, Southern California primarily to Las Vegas. He got Northern California kids, and he got kids that are from outside the region, one of whom, of course, is um, you know his his nephew by mm-hmm. marriage, Omar Norman Lott. Um, but it's the thing that I said on the board when people were saying, well, you know, he wasn't loyal, and he was only here for one year, and ASU pulled him out of a Fresno State and mm-hmm. all this stuff. People are going to do what's in their best interest and the best interest of their families. Uh-huh. He's getting a significant raise to go to Oklahoma, which is one of the most successful programs in college football history and certainly in, in, in our era that, mm-hmm. we're, that we're in right now. Right. He, and, and he's setting a benchmark for uh, where he's going to be compensated probably mm-hmm. for the rest of his career. And he is uh, demonstrating this trajectory that's just ascendant. Like he looks like he is like this big-name guy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he probably has things he needs to work on as a coach and as a recruiter and all that stuff. But it's it's hard to turn that down. It, it just If you're listening, ask yourself if you can go work for a place doing the same thing as you currently do but make 30 40 50% more money with better resources and it's easier to recruit to that place and you're going to work with better athletes who can play in the NFL – do you want to do that? Yeah, I think most people would say they would, you know, even if you got to leave after a year. And so I understand it. But the but the broader implica- implications of this, which is, you know, you're touching on is really important here. Ray Anderson, people will know, uh, laid out his vision for ASU football and what's possible in the press conference in which he announced Todd Graham's dismissal a few years ago. And he said uh, that 
he thinks that it's reasonable to uh, believe that ASU can be a top 15 program, nationally a top three program in the Pac-12, mm-hmm. perennially, not sometimes do that. Right. All the time do mm-hmm. that. Well, the best programs in the country, certainly the the top 15 in the in the country, they they don't lose a lot of their assistant coaches unless – unless they want to lose them, mm-hmm. put it that way, right? right? And ASU's had gone through a significant amount of coaching attrition, right? New coordinators, multiple years, right? New D-line coach basically every single year for, I mean, I can't even remember, six years or something mm-hmm. crazy. And and so, you know, Herm Edwards is saying, okay, like, Next man up, we got to. I get it, and they have improved their staff from a recruiting standpoint. I think they made savvy hires and decisions, but there's only so long, and there's only so much of that that you can uh, uh, sustain without it having some ramifications on your program. Right. You need continuity. You need to be able to develop and build people. You need to be able to retain and promote and have a culture that uh, is is largely impenetrable, mm-hmm. and that that hasn't happened yet. And and there's a lot of factors that go into why that is the case. It, it, you, know, you look at the Pac-12 media rights and the, the, the revenue share is a lot worse than it is in, right. in the SEC or right. in the Big Ten. And that, that's, that matters, right? Like if you have 10, 15, 20 more million dollars in your athletic department, you, you can compensate coaches more. You can, you can do more with your facilities. And ASU has good stadium, really good facilities, all that stuff. Still losing coaches, right? Because mm-hmm. people want to be paid at the end of the day. And if you got ASU got Herm Edwards at a pretty bargain price initially, well, you're going to have to, some of these coaches you're going to have to figure out a way at some point to start retaining because it really matters. Like I thought Billy Napier should have been retained. And I remember you were they, very critical they, of that when that happened. That, they that could he have was... increased his salary and retained him. Right. So, you know, it is important to say Antonio Pierce, the most important person in the program, other than Herm Edwards, by making him this DC, you probably keep him for two more years because let's say he's not play calling, but he's co DC this year. Then he has to probably demonstrate that he's a good play caller. Mm-hmm. The following year, 2021, ASU's probably right. got a really good team. Well, maybe then he has a chance, but by then you got Prentice Gill, Chris Hawkins, and other guys that have been able to develop. One of them's taking over the recruiting coordinator role. You got it kind of rolling. So I think Herm Edwards is making pretty good decisions, all things considered. But there are some headwinds that are that are that are significant challenges. And we're going to transition now to ASU's recruiting class. Sorry and for it, going on a rant. No, there. no, no. We we like your rants, Chris. Um, and in the premium edition, we're going to have coming out later today. It's going to dive much deeper into this class, some of the intricacies of it, uh, some comparative analysis about it. Kevin Stewart, our analyst, wrote a great article um, about the about comparing these classes uh, since two thousand two. This class actually tied for the best class ASU has had since 2002. And Jacob, you wrote a really good article um, uh, that's on our website right now about ASU's efforts in California and Arizona. What more can you tell us? And what did Herm Edwards say specifically about that yesterday? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. Yesterday during the press conference, there was a there was a, a really good question asked a couple of them actually about how the the, the politics almost of recruiting and how ASU's efforts in California may have potentially overshadowed what they're trying to do in Arizona. And Herm Edwards and Antonio Pierce tried to make it very clear yesterday that they are not trying to stray away from their work in Arizona as far as recruiting goes, but they're looking for the best talent wherever that is. And they basically said, and Herm Edwards verbatim said, this is home being Arizona. This is where the school is. This is where we want to recruit. And and what they, they talked about yesterday was how 
they want to recruit the top tier players. Herm Edwards said that they want to make offers to every single top player in Arizona. This year, ASU made 26 offers in the state of Arizona. And, and essentially what they said is they aren't going to settle for lesser players or players that don't necessarily fit their profile or fit their process is what Herm Edwards said. If they don't, if they don't fit the process, they're not going to pursue them. And they aren't going to be influenced by how other people feel their recruiting process is going. And, and that being said, wherever the top recruits are or wherever the best players are that fit the program's DNA, mm-hmm. in the words of Edwards and Pierce, that's where they're going to be recruiting. And so this year, like Pierce said, that was in California. That's where their best recruits came from. But that could be Arizona one year, and that could be across the nation in another year. And it's just a matter of trying to find the recruits, no matter where they are, not necessarily that California is their priority or Arizona is their priority. It's just that they're trying to recruit the best best class possible Mm -hmm. and fill whatever needs they may have. And for more information and and context on this recruiting class, uh, what can you say, Chris, about overall what you thought of what happened yesterday and and with this class overall? Well, yesterday went very much to schedule because ASU really only had a couple of scholarships left. They got, most importantly, Henry Haddis, the grad transfer from Stanford, uh, who won't be in Tempe until the summer, but he's a guy that was starting for Stanford at the outset of last season and could plug into a guard spot. And then Dalen McLemore, who's uh, a developmental quarterback, somebody that was a top 100 recruit in California, top 25 pro-style quarterback. Uh, I think that he fits a lot of the criteria of what ASU is looking for. He's a little bit raw, hasn't played a ton, got hurt as a senior, broken collarbone, didn't start as a junior for a very talented team that had other uh, good quarterbacks. So, uh, And then they added Jake Ray, a tight end from Florida, because that's the direction they want to go is they want to get more multiple, the ability to get more two, three tight end looks mm-hmm. onto the field. And then just reiterating, we've talked about this ad nauseum at this point, but ASU, of course, signed its um, – it's they completed its best average stars recruiting class in history, and uh, it was the first time ever that it went over forty percent in the number of four or five star prospects that it signed, which is really important because if you look at all the college football playoff participants uh, since they've gone to the fourteen playoff, every one of them has had fifty uh, percent or more of its recruits in the preceding four years before five star recruits. So you need to get to that threshold to be able to compete at that level. And certainly, absolutely, without question, to be able to sustain anything at that level. ASU is moving in that direction, um, highlighted, of course, by the best ever wide receiver class that the the program assigned, four four four-star recruits. Only a couple other schools in the country did that. All those guys are from California. And then two running backs who are four-star guys, Daniel Ngata, Diamante Trainum, one of whom is from California. That's five skill players from California who are four-star recruits. And, of course, Jaden Daniels played a significant mm-hmm. role in how the program was able to leverage him. And I think it also helps a lot when you've demonstrated that you are willing and able to not just play guys who are freshmen, but also play them successfully on both sides of the ball. Uh, Chris can attest to this. Uh, February is definitely, I feel like, a lot more anticlimactic now with the early signing period. Having, uh, I mean, ASU was so successful, like Chris said, just with the skilled players and and signing a majority of this class uh, in December. So their targets for February it was a, it was a lot smaller, especially with uh, the five blue shirts from last cycle carrying over. They only had 20 counters available uh, in this recruiting class, and and again, blue shirting two guys uh, in Will Schaefer and Ryan Morgan so far, but. Um, 
they really hit on all the targets they wanted to hit on. I, I, they wanted to get a tight end initially. Uh, we're looking at Jack Yeri, but but kind of backed off and, and, and pivoted almost immediately basically to Jake Ray um, and, and got him on an official visit. He was obviously committed to UNLV beforehand um, after an official visit there and then obviously getting their quarterback uh, in Dalen Micklemore. And, and along the offensive line, they targeted, they wanted to – uh, grad transfers and, and achieved that goal as well. Uh, so really, uh, kind of hit it out of the park in, in every way in February, and really achieved everything they wanted to to, to achieve. Yeah, the, to the point about the early signing day now becoming the most prominent by far. Right. It's uh, it's dramatically different from just three years ago when you look at it. And I personally think that over time the pendulum may swing back because what we see is that the kids that don't sign. In December, they end up getting better offers almost invariably after that because there's uh, just a lot more, you know, teams that need to finish out their classes and there's just not a lot of supply. So they start to like offer kids. I think you may see this kind of ebb and flow depending upon what happens with it. I don't personally like a December and a February signing period. I, I think that it would be better to have a January signing period and an April signing period. January gets you through all the most of the coaching initial changes carousel and it allows a little more time for visits. April gets you more time on the transfer market and, and, and some of those things. I doubt that they're going to make any kind of change like that. Um, but football is very different than all these other sports and they've sort of tried to fit football into a model that doesn't really work with the schedule of how the how, how football actually unfolds. Right, and, and Chris, I know, like I said, they, they kind of filled all 20 of their spots, um, but still maybe some potential to continue to add to this class after uh, the signing day period. What can you kind of talk about with that? Well, I, I think I'll probably save some of the, the very specifics for the premium, but we know that because Michael Turk left for the NFL that ASU's punting situation is kind of up in the air. They have one walk-on in their program currently that they like and think that maybe can be a, a good uh, guy, but I think they would like to possibly take a grad transfer. And then I think, of course, uh, they're always going to be looking for an edge player, a pass rusher. So maybe the transfer market, maybe you know somebody who's graduated and is looking looking to make an impact somewhere else in his final year. All right, now we're going to transition toward basketball. ASU basketball coming off a road trip to Washington. More inconsistency there, a split road trip, one and one. Uh, chance to beat Washington State after double-digit deficits, uh, multiple ones in the second half. C.J. Ellaby had a game-winning three-pointer. Jalen House with the turnover as ASU was trying to get up a shot to either tie or take the lead. Um, and then ASU rebounds and has a pretty nice win against the Washington Huskies, uh, winning the whole time and, and winning by double digits there. What did you guys make of ASU basketball's last weekend? Yeah, it's another case of frustration for this team, Rob, considering they did get the Washington win, and that was actually a really good win when you look at it. That's a Quadrant 1 opponent, considering the non-conference season that they had. They're the only team to beat Baylor still, so that actually played very well for ASU in their net standings. But then again, this might have been the best opportunity for ASU to pick up a road sweep for the rest of the season. Um, and Washington State isn't a bad loss. It's only a Quadrant 2 loss, considering they played there. But at the same time, considering ASU had... Uh, a season-high 21 turnovers in that game and 15 in the first half. And they were only down, I think, eight at halftime, and they were able to pull it back and eventually take the lead with a minute to go um, and then just didn't execute down the stretch when Washington State had actually had a lot of trouble offensively through the last 
six minutes of that game um, was another frustrating thing. And we can look at the final minute and kind of break that down. It was missed free throws. Um, it was on the last possession of the game that Jalen Graham inbounded the ball to Jalen House as opposed to Remy Martin. Um, when Bobby Hurley elected not to take a timeout. That's a key game managing situation that you got to have there. Um, but at the end of the day, ASU picked it up and they were able to win at Washington and they made 27 of 33 free throws that game. So there were some promising signs there um, and, and some things they're going to have to take care of moving forward um, is consistency. And, you know, that's kind of been the case with this team. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, Trevor talked about what, a what ASU didn't do so well at Washington State just Three days later, they went to Washington, and the, everything really kind of turned the corner, especially the free-throw shooting, and that was something that Bobby Hurley mentioned. After that game back in Arizona when we were able to talk to him, he talked before the game at Washington and said basically that his team needed to do a better job of doing the smaller things. So that was like rebounding and free-throw shooting and being more consistent in the little aspects of their game if they wanted to have a big-picture better season then, and be more consistent with the outcomes of their games. And he basically pointed to free-throw shooting as one of the big things. They went 8-for-15 against Washington State, and I believe off the top of my head they missed only three free-throws against Washington, and that was one of their best free-throw shooting performances in a long time. So these are the little things that Bobby Hurley's talked about where his team needs to be more consistent. ASU has not had a particularly good season from the free-throw line especially, and that was one of those games where it really shows just how important it is if they can do that well, how far that goes in a game if you can be consistent. Jalen Graham is a player. That was one of my bigger takeaways from from this weekend, and Chris has said it before. Uh, just said this, it all season. Yeah, this is a guy who deserves more minutes, and 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 he was pivotal in the Washington win, especially uh, down the stretch. Um, he he's a guy who who definitely should be competing for more minutes, and we've had stories on the side about him. Uh, playing or loving to play alongside Romello Whitemore and vice versa as well. Um, but but both of these games, I mean, still no road sweep under Bobby Hurley yet. Um, definitely a winnable game against Washington State. They, they'd love to have that one back. Um, and then they turn it around. It, it seems like they always figure out a way to win after a loss uh, under the Bobby Hurley era, but they can't get that first initial win. So uh, it, it kind of conflates the results. But at the end of the day, I think that this – is something that they'll look to turn around, to take the positives from the Washington win, and move forward. And Khalid Thomas, especially in the high post, breaking the zone against that Washington uh, zone defense is something that we might see against other zone defenses moving forward as well. You sort of stole my thunder, and I thought you made some really important points there, Mason. The big picture thing is just the yo-yoing of the, the, this this team and and really the just under Bobby Hurley, the team has – they they just seem like they're going to have a breakthrough but they then they just lose a game win a game lose a game win a game and they just they, they just they just keep sustaining that in 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 pack 12 it almost feels like they have to be reminded by a loss of how hard that they have to compete and how much that they have to play together and then hurley has to like grind them and then they recapture it and then they and then they fall apart and have a bad game then he has to remind them it's like it's like you, a cycle and they have to break this cycle they they haven't won four games in conference play in a row since hurley arrived on campus i think they've only won three games in a row in the pac-12 three times since he arrived on campus and you can't get to be the program that they aspire to be without going on some runs where you win four five six pac-12 games in a row mm-hmm 
that's arriving, right? And so I don't know that the players fully understand like how and what they have to do completely because if they did, you probably wouldn't have the lapses. It seems to be like it's they have a a somewhat consciousness of it, but it's not fully embedded into them in a way that they're able to bring out on demand, right? And that is the challenge. How do you take it from an emotional rah-rah thing that gets you to a certain place to a programmatic thing that you are just a killer on switch? Right. We're going, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's what you want to have. That's what you need to try to get to. Now, the more finite, you know, thing that Mason talked about that I also liked was the pairing of these two bigs. Bobby Hurley has loved it's guard you, right? That's his self moniker. Right. But he wants to be able to space the floor. Okay. That's the whole reason why that they that they go with four guys that are perimeter types of players and one interior player, right? You space the floor passing lanes, the ability to get, you know, mm -hmm. cutters, right. all the stuff that you that you can derive from that from the space that created by that, right? Now, that sort of isn't as valuable though if you don't have the reliable play from some of those players. And what we've seen pretty consistently this year, if you look at it, Kamani Lawrence has really struggled. Tayshawn Cherry has had his ups and downs. I think he's played better generally of late, but yeah. still, and especially shooting the ball, not been, been that good. But neither one of those guys, right? Mickey Mitchell, not a guy who's going to really do anything to stress you from the three-point line, right? So, so then you either have two options. You can go really small, and then you got some, you got some, you know, ramifications that you have to contend with because of that. Or you can be a team that because you, Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, what do they do? They create some havoc. They can, they, can, they can get to places on the court with the basketball. If you get second chance opportunities from help defense coming over, put back dunks, go rebound the basketball, put the basketball up at the rim, kick it out, get another possession, second chance points. To me, that seems like a recipe for this team that they haven't really fully even explored, much less tapped into, mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense. And by the way, you can actually, by playing Graham and Romelo White on the floor together, you can create matchup problems for opponents that they otherwise probably don't really have in the Pac-12. Not every team, but at least some of the teams out there are going to have a hard time adjusting to that, especially because you can maybe go really big if you decided that you wanted to. Right, you can play Tayshawn, slide Tayshawn Cherry over. Right, you, there's things that you can do, and I've just felt for weeks. You you look at the efficiency of of Jalen Graham as a freshman, and he's only getting better. Actually, right, you probably need to figure out a way to get him on the floor more than 10, 12 minutes, and especially with other guys kind of struggling, or or in some nights when you know they're not going to give not going to give you any an, enough. There's some nights that we watch games five minutes in. You go, nope, that ain't happening tonight for him. And even Hurley kind of knows it. That's why he's cycling ten guys into the lineup in the first five to seven minutes, right? Like he's trying to find something. Well, when you're trying to find something, maybe maybe go more extended time with Jalen Graham and Romello White on the floor.
And that's really going to wrap up. I mean, Jacob, you had another point you wanted to mention? Well, yeah, j- just to, to build off of what you just said, Chris, statistically speaking, Jalen Graham has been one of ASU's best players while he's on the court by the numbers. Among ASU players who have played at least 25% of the team's minutes, he has ASU's best block percentage, best offensive rebound percentage, best o- <coughs> effective field goal percentage, and two-point field goal percentage. However, ASU and Chris, you and I talked about this previously, hasn't really done a whole lot of getting their big men the ball. They don't touch the ball enough based on what you and I talked about. Romello White only touches the ball on 18.4% of ASU's offensive possessions. And like you had said to me in the past, he needs to be well into the 20s for him to be an effective player, but he's not even into the 20 range. And Jalen Graham's at 16.4%. You compare that to Okongwu or Isaiah Stewart. Okongwu at USC, Isaiah Stewart at Washington. Both those guys are like 24, 25%. To give you the exact number, Isaiah Stewart is currently leading Washington at 25.1%. And to give you your other number, Okongwu's at 24.0%. Right. And so, and one more thing on this, right? If I think the concerns that that Bobby Hurley has, and we don't know exactly to the degree to which they uh it's it's valid i'm sure it is somewhat but about about Khalid Thomas is is his defense and rebounding more so than his what he provides as a perimeter shooter that's his strength right well you could play Thomas at the small forward with Graham and Romello White and you can go really big maybe you even mix in some zone if you decide to do that possibly there's different things that you can look at and now you're big and you get three guys who can shoot the ball on the floor together. And maybe you're taking some of the burden off some of your guards, especially on nights where maybe uh, Rob Edwards has shot the ball a lot better in conference play. Of course, he's like in the top six or seven in three-point shooting, I think. But uh, it, let's say you have an off night from Verge or Edwards, right? Which you're most likely going to You're going to have that. Well, now you can go to a, a whole different type of a look. And, and by the way, what – so many Pac-12 coaches that I've spoken to about this over the years say one of the biggest challenges is in the short turnaround to games when teams have a lot to prepare for about different packages that opponents do. So if you have the ability to go really big, really small, and you can play different styles, low high post actions, some different things creatively mm-hmm. – now you now you become a, a tougher team to prepare for, and you can go to and you can go to different types of things in end game situations where ASU also has tended to kind of struggle somewhat. And just sort of to wrap up the points that you guys brought up on Tuesday, I asked Jalen Graham and Ramella White, and especially Ramella White, how does playing with Jalen compared to the lineups you had with Daquan Lake and Zylan Cheatham in previous years? Because Ramella really liked playing with Daquan Lake and what they were able to do from a similar perspective from a physical standpoint. And he said it's much similar in that regard. And when you look at the statistics, actually, Jalen Graham is actually comparable to those players. He has a higher player efficiency rating than Zylan Sheenum did in his senior season. Um, and his usage rate is actually much lower than both, as we were talking about just the efficiency that he's played with mm-hmm. and how he's been able to attack the offensive glass. I think the next step for these two on the court together is someone who's going to be able to stretch on the perimeter, someone who's going to be able to add the mid-range shot, Definitely. a guard or perimeter player in order to keep it on the floor together and stay out of foul trouble, but it's been promising so far. Okay, so I think everybody's everybody's through. I think I we're got ready. Another point. Yeah, every, anybody else have another well, little tiny point? I, I do, I do. Oh, of course do. he does. I do. I do. <laughs> Who do you work for? 
Um, so look, you, so, right. So look, this is our free podcast folks, right? Our premium podcast. I think our audience knows that we go into a lot more detail. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you like this podcast, you're a podcast person. We most of the year we do a, a, a weekly premium podcast and that's just a small fraction of what we do on the site, a very tiny, teeny fraction. And, and just like a lot of other places there, they do podcasts, right? And then they, you know, they, 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 you know, they do some reporting, some, you know, you know, tweeting about things, social media, whatever. We do a tremendous amount of content in addition to the podcast that we do. And Chris is just getting warm into going into his ASU football recruiting uh, information. I'm warmed up. Everybody's going to want to hear that. That's going to be coming up next on our premium podcast. I'm not leaving. Uh, but for right now, uh, for publisher Chris Cartman, reporters Mason Kern, Trevor Booth, and Jacob Rudner, I'm your host, Rob Warner. I'm Thanks not leaving. so long, and thank you for leaving, for, for tuning in. <laughs> I got you shook. <laughs>